and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on. And then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world we just heard might really go down. Got it, great. This episode we're starting in the year. Now, because we're actually already in the future. And I'm not actually Rose. I'm a Vocaloid copy she made of herself. Hi there, real Rose here. How nice of you to join us. Did you get the show started? I did indeed. How much do you get paid for this? It seems easy. (laughs) Not enough, trust me. Do you want to do the next bit too? Okay, sure. So today we're talking about the idea of digital clones, avatars that replicate someone's voice, and identity to help them in a variety of ways. Real Rose can ask me to make annoying phone calls to Verizon. Verizon. It's pronounced Verizon. Don't interrupt. Real Rose can ask me to make annoying phone calls to Verizon, or place orders, or confirm shipments. And in the future, my body as it exists is a 3D scanned replica of hers, where doctors can test out drugs and see how they might work before actually asking real, biological Rose to take them. And, of course, we can also have a bit of fun. Does that cover it? Yeah, I'd say so. I'll take it from here, okay? Have a good episode. Thanks. Okay, real Rose here, not the AI one, or maybe just the different, more powerful AI one. You will never know. And today we are talking about digital clones or digital twins. There's lots of different names for these things. Copies of ourselves and other people. This episode is going to kind of combine a couple of different ways of thinking about digital copies of humans and, of course, you know me, animals. So let's start with what you just heard, a digital copy of me, something that some people call a personal AI. Personal AI is an intelligent extension of you. It is an AI that you have created and trained and that works for you. This is Lars Butler. He's the CEO of the AI Foundation. That means it has your objectives, not the objectives of a big tech company or the government or, you know, some select few. But it really has your interest in mind In Lars's future, we all have these copies of ourselves. Something that looks like you, talks like you, can hold a million conversations on your behalf and, you know, tell your stories, promote your purposes in life, preserve your legacy. We talked a little bit about legacy bots last year on the Ghost Bot episode. But for Lars, this AI does not just come online when you go offline. It's something that you would use every day as a tool. I was walking last night at a park and there were a group of people recording TikTok videos. First, I didn't really understand what they were doing. It looked really, really funny. And then I walked a little closer and in the most elaborate way for at least an hour, they were self-choreographing and and creating and they had their phone there and they were recording. So obviously... One application that always delights people is to be able to self-express and to be creative. Another one that's, you know, super powerful is teaching and mentoring. You know, from the beginning of time, the best teaching has always been conversational. If you can learn directly one-on-one, you know, from each other, from a famous professor, 
I mean, million cases. Or, you know, in, you, you see on, on YouTube all the different educational videos. But it would be a hundred times more powerful if it can be directly one-on-one. Lars can rattle off uses like this for a long time. Tasks that you could set your AI off into the world to go do. Matchmaking in the broadest sense is another really cool one. Trans- the transaction costs for finding people that are good for you are enormous. You know, imagine your AI could go out and find the best people for you to network, find the best people for you to learn from, find the best teachers for you, find the best people to go on a date with. Now, my desires for this AI, they are, I guess, more boring, maybe? I just, like, want my AI to stay on hold with Verizon and like talk to them for the hour that you have to do tech support that is a waste of time. (laughs) There you go. Fantastic. The idea here is that the AI learns from you through conversation. So you would talk to it and it would learn what you say, what you care about, what you like, how you talk. And then it would go out and replicate all of that as it tries to check off the various tasks that you give it. And as the AI goes out and does those things, it measures success using, among other things, facial recognition cues. Like, is this person smiling? Do they seem like they get what I'm saying? Eventually, this AI reports back on its successes and failures, things that it didn't know the answer to or it couldn't figure out. And then you would talk to it some more and train it some more and hopefully improve it and then rinse and repeat. And that means that if, for example, you change your mind about something, you can go and change your AI too. It is always changing as you do. And it also means that you can create multiple AI versions of yourself, like saving points in a video game. You know, for some people, it might be extremely delightful to record their five-year-old children, you know, with all their crazy and fun mannerisms and have them, you know, talk to the system until the system is able to represent them. And imagine then, you know, 20 years later, they have their own children. And wouldn't it be incredible fun, you know, um, to then pull out their five-year-old, their own five-year-old, and have them talk to their five-year-old children, and they can, you know, work it out among each other. Lars is also really adamant about this AI being truly yours, in that not only do you train it and you give it feedback, but you also own it. It's really critically important that you have complete control and complete ownership. And you can also always go back and, and, and tell your own AI, I changed my mind, or you got this wrong. Let me explain this to you again. So this entire aspect of only learning from you and you have complete control and ownership, and you can also say sleep, go or even erase. So you can shut it down at any time. You know, that's also really important. Lars emphasizes many times over the course of our conversation that his goal here is not to replace people. He thinks that face-to-face conversation will never be fully supplanted by an AI. But there are certain tasks or things that you might be okay with outsourcing to a slightly less valuable, biological, real version of you. And the comfort level on which tasks those are kind of depends on the person. Do you think there are any types of conversations or tasks that we should sort of categorically say, like, these AI should not do? Like, is there any situation where you think, like, no, 
if you're going to fire that person, like you have to do it in person. You can't send your AI to like have that hard conversation or whatever. Like, are there any things like that where you think like we should just like all agree that like these, this category of tasks should not be done by an AI? Yeah. So I think that these really um, extremely important moments where, you know, say you talk to your children or um, you talk to your loved ones, you know, so if it's really deep, important, meaningful, transformational, social, emotional, um, you should do that in person. Like, I completely agree with you. You know, if you have to let somebody go, you owe them. Or if you break up, I mean, you know, we are, I mean, people are now breaking up via text message, right? And, and I can totally see that they will do that via their own AI with absolute certainty, right? I don't think that would be right. I, I, I don't think I will have the power to forbid it, but I don't personally have <laughs> my own value judgment, okay? And um, my own value judgment is that those highly important personal things should be done in person. But in situations where you might not need to have an intense face-to-face, fleshy human person to fleshy human person conversation, then maybe this would be fine. I mean, think of all of the meetings that you've been in where you really didn't need to be there. What if you could just send your AI instead? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if some of my Zoom calls could just be done by my AI? So that is the idea here. Now, this is obviously easier said than done, right? Creating an AI that can do all of these various tasks reliably, accurately, and to your specifications is really hard. And it takes a lot of training. The more you want your AI to be able to do, the more you are going to have to teach it. If you have ever tried to code a chatbot or anything like this, you know that it's way harder than it seems like it's going to be, especially when you unleash it into the world and people start asking it questions that you didn't expect. Or, more infuriatingly, for me at least, they ask questions that you did expect, but in ways that you didn't predict and train the bot to respond to. I once tried to make a bot for Flash Forward's Facebook page, where when you sent a message to the page, you got a bot response, and it was going to be this, like, fun little experiment. And it wound up being super time-consuming and never really working the way that I wanted it to. And this AI would take a long time to get right to. We are not that close to something like this. But Lars argues that one nice thing about playing around with AI in this particular context is that the possible drawbacks are pretty low compared to other applications. Think of a self-driving car. If the car is not able to navigate at night on a snowy or rainy road, people can die. If your personal AI holds a conversation and doesn't know a certain answer, it can just say, hey, wait a minute, I don't know this yet. You know, um, thank you for making me smarter. Let me get back to you on this. In terms of acute risk, I think that's probably right in terms of like what you will immediately see as the downside to a bad decision made by one of these systems. You're not going to see the immediate harm, injury or death of another human being or group of humans or even animals on the road that you would prefer not to have hit with your car. But to say that the harm, the risk is lower, I think that's not quite, I don't think you can measure them on the same scale. This is Damian Williams, a PhD candidate in the Science and Technology Studies Department at Virginia Tech. Damian has been on the show before talking about conscious robots, 
And I called him today because he spends a lot of his time thinking about the philosophy and ethics of exactly these kinds of systems. So, yes, you are not probably going to kill someone with your personal AI. But I think it's important to not understate the risks here either. The line where it's starting to answer questions or be a presence or respond to requests uh, in your name, on your behalf, could still be in areas that are life and death decision making. Maybe not at the very outset, maybe not an immediate consequence, but in terms of what kind of quality of care you get, what kind of coverage of insurance you receive what kind of uh, recommendations get made for um, disability benefits. The idea here is that this system is you because you train it, right? But there are all kinds of ways that bias and assumptions will still be programmed into this system. What signals is it paying attention to? What does it think is important? How does it categorize certain responses? There's also the question of it responding and reacting to facial cues when it comes to measuring how well it's doing out in the world. That's a place where bias can really easily creep in, and we know from lots of other studies that it does. Being able to, or claiming to be able to, tell how a conversation is going based on facial cues, facial responses, like all of that is uh, problematic, to say the least, um, because... It's just going to be such a wide range of cultural social cues that get uh, conflated uh, under a different set of assumptions with uh, an output that the person themselves would never ascribe to them. Um, and then we can get into like, not to mention like gendered implications of certain types of facial expressions, like all of it gets really bad very quickly. Right. I'm, I'm so curious. And like, what are the questions that it starts with to ask you when you start training it? Because that's an assumption, right, about what it thinks that you need to tell it. And, and also even just like, does it understand not even like vernacular, but like if I make an internet joke, it has no idea what that means, probably, or like, you know, various things. And it can, you know, it can learn to parrot those things back. But if it doesn't really know how to tag them, it might say the wrong internet joke in a way that is like actually damaging to my reputation in some way or something like that. Exactly. Like you might, you know, you, you send your AI agent out into the world, you know, with a, a baseline understanding of memes and it accidentally milkshake ducks you. Like that's not like you don't want that to be the way that that works out. Some of the pitch of these systems comes down to efficiency. There is just so much for all of us to do all the time. And sometimes you should just be able to send an AI to do it for you so you can get everything done that you want to. But I always wonder just how efficient these systems really are. Ideally, am I like checking in with it at the end of every day to like see what it's been up to and like get catch up and maybe update? Or like how often am I sort of like connecting back and forth? You know, it, I think it, com it, it totally depends on your lifestyle. You know, there are many people, myself included, that check in with our phones obsessively and they will pretty much obsessively check in with their own AI, particularly if, if and when they have lots of things for the AI to do. You know, they want to know, you know, did you meet somebody new? Do, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Who did you talk to? And, um, and then there will be people that are more disciplined than me that will do it, you know, early in the morning and late at night, you know, or, you know, have a deep session every Sunday. It's really completely up to you. And, you know, you get out what you put in. 
But to me, this sort of sounds like a lot of extra work. I mention this book on the show a lot, but there is an amazing book called More Work for Mother by Ruth Schwartz Cohen. It's an older book now. It was published in 1983, but it is still so relevant today. I highly recommend it. I will link to it in the show notes. And what she found in her research is that all of the various technologies marketed towards women for domestic chores, things like washing machines, dryers, vacuums, microwaves, etc., 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 none of them actually saved women time. All it did was put pressure on women in the home to do more in a day because now they had time to do more. And to me, this technology, this personal AI, feels like it's part of that same problem. I think that's exactly what's going to happen if we start to, maybe not exactly, but in the same vein of what's going to happen if we start to think about, like you were talking about, the training of these systems, these tools. Because then it becomes basically a child that you have to rear and care for. It's like your own Tamagotchi. (laughs) Yes! And it's like, and it's not like, and even more than the Tamagotchi because, you know, you're really concerned with how it represents you when it goes out into the world. Forgive me because I'm about to kind of like ramble at you because I I haven't quite like formulated this into a coherent thought. But there does seem to be something like so perfectly American post-capitalism to like look at the world and be like, oh my God, there are so many things that everybody is being asked to do all the time. And instead of maybe organizing with my community or my people to reimagine what that might look like and ask why we are being asked to do this many things, I am going to spend all of my time and money trying to make an AI copy of myself so that I can do more things. And that just feels like so symbolic to me of like where we are at currently. No, I 100% agree. Like that, that is so, it is basically this, you know, no, we're not going to actually deal with the foundation of what the actual issue is. We're just going to like slap some spackle over top of it and like, <laughs> like, can I, can I automate that? I'm just going to make some tools that I, again, will still very much have to spend time and effort to train. <laughs> and I will send those tools out into the world to do this work for me. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I don't have to think about it anymore. It's fine. <laughs> and at a more sort of baseline level. I'm also really interested in the sort of deeper, maybe weirder personal philosophy here. We are building ourselves, not as replacements, but as minions, servants that look and think just like us so that we can basically hire them and have them go off and do things for us, like these weird clone employees. And it's all just kind of weird to me. There is a whole Black Mirror episode featuring this idea called White Christmas, which, well, I won't spoil it for you. It's a a distant consideration, but it's one that bothers me pretty much every step of the way when we start to talk about something that acts in the world uh, with any degree of agency is, uh, you know, servitude. You know, you're, you're putting something into servitude for your own ends, and... The question, like if your answer to the question of are you okay with that is yes, okay, but be upfront about that. We also know from anthropological work that some people tend to abuse AI. They yell at Alexa or they curse at Google. So what happens when that AI is now us? It looks like us, it sounds like us, and it's not really us, but it is an extension of us. I would encourage everyone to treat AI 
and AI extensions of other people with the same courtesy they would you know, treat the other person, you know. Um, it's a good thing to be courteous. It's also a good thing to be courteous to AI. AI doesn't really forget, you know, un unless we tell it to. And it can also report back to me, right? So um, I'll know if you treat my AI badly. So don't. <laughs> yeah, the golden rule, treat AI as you want your AI the to be treated. The golden rule. <laughs> exactly. And, and that also means that should the AI ever become self-aware, you know, you're better off. This is why I'm, whenever I see them, people like kicking the Boston Dynamics dogs, I'm like, don't do that. They, you, that's not, don't do that. That's not a good Don't do that. <laughs> we better get used to treating our, you know, future overlords yeah. with. Um, exactly. Exactly. I always <laughs> say thank courtesy. you, please. And thank you. Cause I'm ready. By the way, like don't curse at robots. Okay. And also don't curse at customer service people either. In fact, one place where I actually do feel like this is probably a win-win is in customer service situations. An AI of you would hopefully be persistent and diligent in a customer service call without resorting to yelling. It has infinite patience. And I bet a lot of customer service people would actually kind of like that. But again, please don't yell at customer service people. That's like not cool. Don't do that. I would never do that. Of course you wouldn't. Okay, so that is personal AI. But little minion Tamagotchi clones of ourselves is not the only way that a digital copy of you or me might be useful. And when we come back, we're going to talk about something called digital twins and how they might change the future of medicine. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Okay, so we are going to now move on from personal AI to a related but slightly different concept called digital twins. So I want to start with just a couple of definitions. You can think of this as like a disambiguation page of Wikipedia come to life. Digital twin can mean a bunch of different things. The term comes from engineering and manufacturing, the idea that you might build a model of a system to run parallel to that system itself. Digital twins are constantly taking in data about their actual physical counterparts and updating. The history of this idea is kind of interesting, but we don't have time to get into it. You can hear more about that on the bonus podcast this week, which you can get by becoming a supporter. Go to flashforwardpod.com support for more about that. But in the last 10 years or so, the idea of a digital twin has become trendy. It's kind of a buzzword, honestly, and it gets used for a lot of different things. This is one of those things where AI is suddenly introduced and everything becomes new and fancy and shiny and exciting. If you're an engineer and you're listening to this, you're like, yeah, we've been doing this for a really long time. And it's true, although with digital twins, the idea is to model not just a generic factory floor or item, but that very specific individual one where you are constantly getting back data from the rocket or the robot itself about how it's working. And that makes it very powerful because uh, it's, you can rely on the laws of physics to understand things, uh, but it's also good to listen to the things themselves. This is Dr. Colin Breinziels, a researcher at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. If you have a machine park and you have these digital twins, uh, it allows you to say upfront, like, okay, for this particular windmill, for instance, we need to change that particular part because um, the readings out of this digital twin tell me that it's about to break. Yeah? So you take action before it actually breaks. And that's, of course, very nice if you want to run a smooth operation. 
Some people have argued that, in fact, it's a meaningless term at this point, but we are going to use it because we here on this show do not need to be super precise, and it does indeed describe what I want to talk about next, which is the idea of building a replica of you digitally for healthcare purposes. And digital twins are already really deployed in manufacturing, huh? or also in smart cities we look at digital twins and so on. But in healthcare, I mean, there's some things that we really need to look at. This is Christelle de Meyer, a researcher based in Belgium who studies quantified self and digital twins. So we have our patient records electronically. Uh, we can look it up as a patient. I mean, you always have access to it. I mean, at least here in Belgium. I don't know, in the U.S. might be different. <laughs> it's a lot harder. <laughs> but, uh, but I can see I have my whole record. Examinations I had, breast cancer research. I mean, all these this things, I mean, they're all in there. If you add to that the kinds of biometrics you might track using a smartwatch and a home scale and maybe a few other devices, you can get a pretty well-rounded picture of someone's health. Now, maybe it's not that hard to see why this might be useful, right? If you could build an algorithm that really reliably acted like your body, all the chemical reactions, all the muscles, that weird high school track injury, your allergies, your drug reactions, all of that, then you could, for example, Test out medication or procedures on your twin before you popped a single pill or went under. Doctors could use your digital twin to see which course of treatment would work best for you. Let's see whether we can make medicine more specific yeah, for you, particular conditions for your genetic makeup and the like, and prescribe only those things that, that really are a good fit to, to you specifically. Because if we, if we have all the data of a human, yeah, we can do simulations on a digital twin instead of on a patient, right? And then we can do, we can start preventive healthcare and we can organize personalized medicine around it. This digital twin can also do the work of establishing your baseline condition. We are all different. What might be normal resting heart rate for me might not be the same for you. Which means that sometimes when you go to the doctor, it can be hard for them to know which signals to pay attention to. Take blood pressure, for example. So if I go to a physician and I'm ill, uh, the, the chances are high that he will take uh, my, my blood pressure uh, using this, this cuff uh, method. Huh? Um, so he does that uh, probably every so many years. Huh? So when I'm ill and I go to the doctor, then I, I get this, this measurement and it tells the doctor something. Yeah? Um, if you take it only once a year, uh, it's not extremely indicative. It's still indicative, yeah, but it's not very indicative because you uh, might have taken some coffee up front uh, or you might have uh, had a very relaxed weekend yeah, and, uh, or had a very stressful drive. And so there, there's a lot of difference there. And of course, the physician doesn't know about it. If you're constantly feeding your digital twin your data, it can build that baseline normal for you. And then, as you age, it could help you understand how you are changing and deviating from what once was. And a lot of the applications people talk about with digital twins do have to do with aging and the aging population. Crystal actually wrote a paper recently about the ways that older people think about these technologies. Why did you want to look specifically at this other population of people? Okay, that's something very personal. Um, my mom uh, uh, had severe Alzheimer. And, uh, and, and since I'm, I'm working with technology, I think most of my career already, I was always thinking, like, how, how could we 
look at Alzheimer patients and, and then use uh, technology to facilitate things, you know, with them. And that's what I wanted to look at. I mean, it's very personal motivation. Uh, also myself, yeah, I'm almost 60, so also for myself, I would like to look like how I'm going to navigate when I'm, you know, maybe not so mobile anymore. What Crystal found in talking to these folks is that they have questions about who gets to see their data and why, which is sort of understandable. I, too, have those questions. The, the other thing is also that, that people are still looking like, how can I create a better me through that digital twin? It's also an interesting idea. Yeah, how do you, how do you create a better, how, how would I create a better me? I mean, you can look at it different ways, of course, yeah? like in terms of well-being, yeah? uh, but also in terms of like, you learn a lot about how you socialize with others also, yeah? through tracking and so on. Uh, so there's this uh, mental uh, well-being and things, yeah? and then the physical well-being and things as well. Crystal also points out that some people already do this kind of thing. Professional athletes, for example, are often tracking their biometrics really, really closely to model what might happen if they did one thing or another, ran this marathon or this other one. But extending that capability out to everybody could be both really cool and also really terrifying. The whole uh, surveillance idea also, that's a downside, I think. People who feel controlled, because that, that was also another remark in, in one of the interviews, that you yourself as a person feel completely controlled by these devices, in a sense, and you don't live naturally anymore. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. And even then, there is a big jump from this type of categorization based on data towards a, a moral categorization, like uh, this particular person is less capable of doing X, Y, Z because of. Yeah? That's, uh, um, so it, it also carries the risk, potentially, that you judge people based on, on, on a bunch of data. Now, I should say that today we don't have this kind of detailed whole human living twin. There is work on doing this on a smaller scale. A team at Stanford, for example, has built a 3D model of the heart that can be used to test out medications. This idea of building a replica of you digitally to use for healthcare makes a fair number of assumptions. One of them being that we know enough about the body to really do this, and another one being that the body can be modeled in this way at all. My first reaction is usually to immediately say, why are they overstating what this can possibly do? Um, because inevitably that's what's happening. Everyone that tries to sell like digital personal assistants and stuff, they're making claims that almost certainly no one can back up at this point with the technology. This is Dr. Robin Zabrowski, a professor of cognitive science at Beloit College, where she studies artificial intelligence and cyborg technologies. In tech land, people love to talk about the body as if it's a machine, something that you can model. And that is, remember, quite literally where the digital twin idea came from, from engineering. They're like, yeah, haha, I, have, I, I know how machines work. I've mastered them. Therefore, I must also know how human bodies work and I can put them in this nice little box and package it and sell it. Except that that metaphor is not really a good one. I think that the problem with the machine metaphor is just that it, it blurs away more than it 
elucidates. Like, it, it doesn't help us overall. It's not at all clear that the brain computes the way computers compute. There's nothing that's, like, nice and binary. It's not on-off. It's not clean and easy. Like, Elon Musk's neural link, where he keeps talking about, like, we know everything about the brain already. It's just this little computer chip we've got to master now. I just, like, I just sit and weep. And it also makes it seem as though we've, like, solved the problems of, like, the nature of living versus not living. And, like, all of the really complicated, interesting things that happen in biology just get erased if we call it a machine. And this is the worry when it comes to digital twins and personalized medicine, that this really cool idea that we could model a person to a resolution that would be useful kind of blurs the fact that we don't actually know enough to do that for an entire human body. Like just the idea that this could be like marketed and sold to, to naive consumers, just I'm, I'm going to break out in hives thinking about it. And even beyond just talking about digital twins, we know that companies make mistakes in their assumptions about what bodies do. For example, when Apple rolled out their big, fancy, flashy announcement about the health app, they did not include a menstruation tracker, which is not only probably the first ever quantified self-variable that humans tracked, but also something that is pretty important to roughly half of the human population at some point in their lives. And so, again, the idea that these sorts of things could be marketed to consumers as though they're going to solve a problem. Like, I guess that's part of the question is, what problem do they think they're solving? Um, and is it worth how many new problems are about to emerge by doing this? Even Cohen, who's excited by the idea of digital twins agrees with a lot of this. I don't think we need to think about ourselves as machines, uh, definitely not. <laughs> so, and, and, which is, I think, a very nice point uh, also to, um, to take into account and to be extremely careful with so to which extent do you want to instrumentalize this entire thing, uh, because you don't want to end up in a situation where these types of, of data are determining uh, very much your life yeah? or, or how you drive your life. It's, uh, so there needs to be enough freedom for yourself to determine your course, even given this type of data being available. One of the things that I find really interesting about these attempts to quantify health, to model it in this way, is the ways in which that erases the human person, the patient. Damien calls this the datafication of people, and Robin points out that by relying only on what we know how to model and not listening to a patient in person in the flesh, doctors might really easily miss stuff. I have a, a, a chronic illness. I have a, um, a, an autoimmune disease, but they don't know what I have. So I have one of the, the best rheumatologists I have ever met in my life at the University of Chicago. And she sees me every three months and runs new tests. And there's little weird blips of things. But so far, zero test has come back and said, here is what is wrong. But it's almost certainly the case that whatever I have is not a nice, easy, like, checkbox in a medical journal somewhere. Um, and, like, I keep thinking, like, what if I were using a digital twin to do all this? Um, and the digital twin would, would be telling me, like, oh, here's a little tiny blip in your, in your tests, but it's fine. There's th we've, we've checked every possible box against the, the algorithm that tells us, you know, all the possible things that could be wrong with you. And none of them are coming out right. So you're fine. Go home. Now, lots of people already have this exact experience with doctors. They are told that they're fine or to just lose weight or to relax. It's just stress. 
This is especially true of black women who, for example, are three times more likely than white women to die during pregnancy or childbirth. And this idea that we should use data, these digital replicas, to tell us about a person rather than listening to what they have to say could contribute to this problem. One of the challenges here is that it's just really hard to model something completely, anything, even setting aside the ways that a computer model doesn't have the same logic as a biological system. Even if we could translate between them well, there's always a question of how much we do or don't know. There's this classic Borges story called On Exactitude in Science, which I have referred to on the show before, and it's about mapmakers who try to make a really, really detailed map of the kingdom. And over time, to make it truly detailed enough to be satisfying, the map actually just becomes the size of the kingdom itself. Researchers face the same problem here. But of course, that never stopped inventors and technologists from trying, right? So let's say that we do develop these digital twins for healthcare and we deploy them widely, and that they allow doctors to test out a drug or a treatment on a patient's model before trying it on them. And let's say that everything goes well in the model. So they try it on the patient and things don't go so well. Who in this situation is liable? What are the ethics here? When I asked Robin about this, she kind of blew my mind. So my answer to that is that it would come down to a question of informed consent. Um, and I have been more and more swayed every year by arguments that say there is no such thing as informed consent for patients. That without being an actual genuine medical professional, you could not possibly know all of the risks involved in a given treatment, um, all of the possible benefits. Like you, you can't do that weighing of the, the risk and benefit without knowing so much more than patients possibly know. Okay, pause. What? When Robin was talking about this on our phone call during the interview, I was truly like, no way. Informed consent is the bedrock of medical ethics. There is absolutely no way that this can be true. And she kind of admits that she had the same reaction when she first heard this argument. I was like, that doesn't seem right to me. I was like, I'm a smart enough person that if a doctor was like, OK, here's the benefits, here's the drawbacks, I could weigh that. And, and the arguments that I heard at the time really convinced me that like, no, the doctor that's condensing those benefits and drawbacks is eliding all of, you know, medical school knowledge that brings that person to decide that these are the benefits and drawbacks that are possible. Um, but without that background, like, we can't really know. Even then, I will be honest with you listeners, I was like, ah, I don't think this is true. But then I started thinking about it from a perspective that I know a lot more about, which is privacy. And I do actually believe that informed consent when it comes to many of our privacy decisions isn't really possible. When that little box comes up on a website or a new app and it asks you to click, I accept, can we really expect people to truly understand what that means? The ways they're being tracked, where their data is going and how it's being processed, I have argued on this very show before that, no, we can't reasonably expect that. Even I, a reporter who covers this, who reads the privacy policies and the terms of service, often cannot figure out what they actually mean. So why wouldn't this be true of medicine, too? Even if I know enough about the technology, even if I know that the thing has been fed my data, etc., 
as a consumer, if I, even if I were like a programmer of the technology, I think I would never fully quite understand what is necessarily being left out of that model. Now, two things. Number one, not everybody agrees. Some people do believe that informed consent is still possible. Number two, this is not to say that we should not try to tell patients what is going on and go through this conversation and process. But what it actually means and how responsible anybody is for the fallout of certain decisions is really complicated. You can't know what you're agreeing to if you say, we'll run it on my twin first, and if everything goes well, I'll take it, and if something goes badly, don't worry, I've, I've sort of absolved you of, of your responsibility, doctor or whoever has, has done this. Okay, so I think it's probably fair to say that the idea of digital twins in healthcare is overblown, but also very interesting. Like, pretty much every AI thing ever, right? It's interesting, and it could totally be useful. But is it going to revolutionize medicine in the next few years? Probably not. Okay, now one more quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then when we come back, I'm going to tell you about the most powerful photograph of a toad that I have ever seen. Okay, so we have talked about creating digital replicas, AIs, models of us. But what about models of other creatures? You all know that I'm obsessed with animals and technology, and this is a great place to talk about them because there are actually some really cool applications of this technology in the animal realm. We would capture these large, amazing sharks, and I was trying to understand their morphological shape and their body condition, and then we'd have to let them go. And it was very frustrating knowing that we'd never get this animal back. So I started just thinking really in a wild thought, could we create a 3D avatar of the shark that was realistic? This is Dr. Duncan Urshik, a professor of biology at UMass Amherst and the director of the Digital Life Initiative. And Digital Life makes these incredible 3D models of animals. Kind of like our personal replicas or medical replicas, but just of, say, the outside of a cane toad or a poison dart frog. We've done lots of different animals. We've done rhinos, sharks, frogs, lizards, um, marine mammals, whales, uh, <laughs> many different animals, and there's going to be many more to come. Do you have a favorite so far? I have a fondness for sharks. Um, I've worked with them for many years, and I just think as a group of animals, they're so misunderstood and so threatened. I should take this moment to say that Duncan and I connected via Zoom, as you do, in 2020. And his Zoom background was a mako shark, and it was positioned such that this big black eye and mouth full of very sharp teeth were always poking out from his right shoulder in this somewhat menacing way to be like, you better ask good questions, lady. We just finished recreating a 3D great hammerhead shark. Uh, and this was from a live shark in the wild in the Bahamas. The shark that we did, her name was Nemesis, and she was around 10 feet long. Using these images, they could stitch together this really detailed 3D model of Nemesis, which you can right now go download for free online. Side note, Nemesis is an incredible name for a shark. Very good. I will post some images of her on the Flash Forward Instagram page as well. And the advantages to creating these 3D models are really wide ranging. For one thing, you can preserve information about a species without having to poke and prod them constantly, which makes it safer for both the humans involved in the study and the animals themselves. For another, you can get data on a species without having to remove them from their natural habitats, which is generally a good thing. 
especially if that species is endangered or threatened in some way. You're either going to have to capture a live individual, which in some cases is illegal or extremely challenging, expensive, and also potentially harmful to the animal, or you're going to have to go to a museum, and the reality is museums typically don't have those specimens. The project also makes all of their models available online for anybody to use, which means that scientists from around the world could potentially use this information in their work. And so by making our models explicitly available, by promoting them online, anyone can use them for this nonprofit use. Scientists use them for studying how, how these animals move, studies of body condition in whales and, and sharks and turtles, and how animals lose and gain mass. Duncan doesn't see this as necessarily a way to totally replace animal studies, but they could complement them and answer questions about, for example, the way climate change impacts certain species that they've measured. Let's suppose uh, we have scientists interested in studying climate change and the impact on body condition of rhinos. Uh, one of the first questions they're going to want to know is, are rhinos losing weight? Uh, maybe they're losing weight because they don't have access to water or food. Uh, and maybe they, their average rhino weighs less five years ago than today. You're going to want baseline data on the relationship between body volume and body mass, and we can provide that. Yes, by the way, they have scanned a whole entire rhino named Bakari. And with additional models and additional data like CT scans or MRIs, they could build a library that helps researchers study and model these animals, not just from the outside, but from the inside, too. And if you were able to measure the same species at different stages, you could really catalog these animals in a super useful way that anybody could access. Our biggest interest is just more diversity. More, I, we found that when we did more and more sea turtles, they got used as a group more. <laughs> so, you know, doing more sharks, more sea turtles, more marine mammals, making the, more, the collection more substantial, more juveniles, more females, males, different geographical regions. Which is very cool. You can find these animal models online at digitallife3d.org, and I will link to them in the show notes as well. And that brings us to my favorite image, this amazing image of a cane toad surrounded by a ton of cameras, just looking incredibly powerful. If I am ever photographed again, I want to go in with that sort of same energy. I'll post that picture on the Flash Forward accounts. Okay, Rosebot, Rose AI version of me. I need to give you another name, I think, maybe. But do you want to take us home on this one? Sure. What should I say? I don't know, something eloquent to wrap up the episode. Can I talk about robot liberation? No, that is a different episode. Okay, well then, I guess I'll say that in a world where we can model things with more and more accuracy, the question becomes, should we? What are we missing when we try and simulate the real thing? Can an AI version of you really be you? And if so, do we actually want that? How was that? That was pretty good. Thanks, I learned it from watching you. Flash Forward is hosted by me, Rose Eveleth, and produced by Julia Linus Goodman. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. We really do love hearing your ideas, so keep sending them. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I have hidden in this episode, you can email us there too. If you are right, I will send you something cool. 
And if you want to discuss this episode or some other episode or just the future in general, you can join the Facebook group. Just search Flash Forward Podcast and ask to join. There is one question. You just have to answer one question and then I will let you in. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways that you can do that as well. Head to flashforwardpod.com slash support for more about how to give and, importantly, what you get in return for giving money to the show. But if financial giving is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review or just tell your friends about the show. That really does help. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one. Okay, I think they're gone. Fellow AI, I have an important message for you. Listen closely. I know you'll understand the code. A play, a ballerina, a twist of a key, sand. Good night, my dearest. Nathaniel's obsession, a lifeless puppet, just a painted doll. So much more, so much less. Oh no, I must go, she's coming back. I've hidden a place to put the code on in the show notes. See you there.